0: Welcome to the CODcast, I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth. A couple of weeks ago, two Cape Cod residents joined me on the show to voice their concerns about the way the electricity produced by offshore wind farms is coming ashore in tiny communities on the Cape and not more industrial locations adjacent to major population centers. It's a sensitive topic coming at a time when offshore wind is struggling to gain its footing here in Massachusetts. So we thought we'd get a different point of view from Ken Kimmel, the Vice President of Offshore Wind Development at Avant Grid, one of the nation's leading offshore wind developers. Let's start with the basics, Ken. Why are these
1: transmission lines coming ashore on the Cape? Sure, Uh, and Bruce, it's a pleasure to be back on your show, so thank you for having me. Um, They're coming, well, first of all, let's start with the obvious, which is we're in the process of launching this whole new offshore wind industry off the coast of Massachusetts. The Vineyard Wind Project is being built offshore as we speak, which is really exciting. And next year, Massachusetts will have uh, the nation's first commercial scale uh, offshore wind uh, facility generating electricity. So super, super exciting. Um, The reason why the Vineyard Wind Project and two other projects of ours, Park City and Commonwealth, are uh, landing in Barnstable, there's really several reasons. Um, first of all, one of the things I learned on this job is there's a relative shortage of places along the East Coast that you can connect to the electric grid that has the capacity to take the power. And Barnstable happens to be one of those uh, relatively small number of places that can that has the capacity to take the power, That that's first of all and uh, Eversource has done this whole upgrade of the electric system on the Cape, anticipating that offshore wind would be connecting to various points on the Cape. So first of all, the grid can take the power at that location, that's one reason. A, A second reason is we made a commitment to the federal regulators and the environmental community to try to avoid having our power lines running all over Nantucket Sound in all different directions and instead to stay within a defined corridor that was uh, mapped out and agreed upon by the parties. One of the advantages is it has a very limited uh, conflicts with fisheries, uh, rare species, et cetera. So it was deemed to be a good corridor. So we wanna run the power lines for all of our projects through that same corridor to avoid uh, unnecessary environmental damage. And that corridor does run directly To the cape it does run directly to barnstable by keeping the lines within that corridor and keeping the shortest possible distance we're doing the least amount of environmental damage we're also saying saving ratepayers money because the longer the transmission lines the more the project costs so that's um really why we're in barnstable and then i would say there's a third benefit to this that hasn't been well publicized, but it's really important, which is that for both our Vineyard Wind Project and our second project, Part City, and we hope for Commonwealth, we're actually uh, in the places where we're going to run our uh, electric duct banks up, up and down the town roads are also places where the town is going to install sewer lines to deal with the huge problem on Cape Cod of uh, various estuaries and lakes and ponds and bays being polluted by uh, septic systems. So the deal that we struck with uh, the town for both the first and second project, and we hope for the third, is that we'll do this collaboratively so these roads only get open once. We'll help with design and engineering will be responsible for paving over and recoding those roads when the construction work is done. And on top of that, we'll pay what we estimate to be, for all three projects, over $200 million in uh, economic benefits to the town, which will help them defray the cost of the sewering. So I guess what I'm saying is by locating in Barnstable, we not only get climate change and clean energy benefits, we get direct water quality benefits, which addresses one of the biggest threats that people on the Cape have, which is uh, water quality deterioration. So that's another reason why uh, the Barnstable location makes so much sense.
0: So h- help us understand a little bit about uh, connections to the grid, because um, obviously it's not like plugging a, 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 <laughs> a, um, an extension cord into a socket. But you're sort of saying Eversource upgraded on the Cape so it had the capacity, but it's my understanding that maybe after these several projects, it will no longer have the capacity and it'll be sort of maxed out. Is, is that true? And if so, why, why do you max out on, on that?
1: Well, I'm not sure that it will be completely maxed out for any other projects, but <laughs> it is true that additional uh, projects connecting on the Cape will need additional upgrades above and beyond what we've committed to for our projects. Um, But my point is just that Eversource anticipated the Cape as being one of the places where these offshore wind projects would land. And the upgrade process was designed precisely to allow these projects to connect to the grid and get that power. And if you look at all the alternatives, first of all, they're much farther away, so they're more costly. Uh, Many of them will take years and years of study uh, and upgrades to actually be available. Um, Some of them will have bigger environmental impacts, and some of them already taken, like Brayton Point. Um, The capacity there is pretty much Taken by uh, our competitor, South Coast Wind Mayflower. So there, are, it isn't like there's all these other alternatives that we're ignoring. That this is for our for our projects on our timeline, the only alternative. So another explaining thing I need is
0: uh, there's references to AC lines and DC lines, and I don't understand what that means. And I I think I understand that with a certain type of line, you can go much longer distances and without losing power in the process. And that could change things. Where are, could you explain a little bit about how that works and what sure. that
1: might mean? Sure, there's two options. Eight alternating current AC lines, which is what we're using, and DC current, which we're not using. And the rule of thumb, as I understand it, is AC lines make sense. They're cost effective. They're based on existing technology. For distances, equal to or under about 75 miles. When you go more than 75 miles uh you're into dc lines. Uh those are uh considerably more expensive to do and I think tech the technology has caught up so that they're technologically viable but they're not uh as readily used as ac. Some of the other projects out in the uh the lease areas um, we will be using dc cable lines because of the long distances from their installations to where they're going to land but uh, we're using ac lines um, a lot of those cables are going to be supplied by prismian cable uh, the manufacturing facility that's being uh, built in somerset um, to provide these ac cables for us other projects will use DC, but the bottom line is um, AC is very solid in terms of its performance and technology, and it's less expensive.
0: And um, f- from these projects that are being brought into Barnstable, how how long of a distance you mentioned it has to be under seventy miles? Seventy miles. How how far is it from these? Um, between about
1: twenty five and forty miles. So
0: easily within that limit.
1: Okay. Easily within that limit.
0: And then after that after Barnstable, maybe is close to getting tapped out like i don't know how far brayton point is but are is it pretty quickly become much longer distances after that
1: brayton point is a longer distance for sure um other alternatives that we looked at when we studied this whole thing are considerably farther um so that that is part of the constraint but also i just want to emphasize these grid interconnections are such a prized possession that developers um, establish what's called queue rights, rights to connect. And if you're first in line, that means you get to connect and everyone else can only connect if there's enough capacity after they've, after the first one's gone. So, We don't have those queue positions at other uh, potential connection points. And the one I want to highlight again, because it's been talked about as an alternative is Brayton point. Um, Other offshore wind developers have the interconnection rights uh, well ahead of us.
0: All right. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit, but let's go back to Barnstable for a minute. And, um, So I remember when Vineyard Wind was starting to, it's work to bring cable ashore. And there's, for people that aren't familiar with the beach there, there's a very nice beach. And then there's a very large parking lot uh, next to sort of a a residential community. Um, And a lot of equipment came in the parking lot. It looked like it was gonna be a a major, you know, industrial effort to do this. Uh, And I was struck, Wondering how that was going to go over and there didn't seem to be a lot of concern about it. And then I looked prior to that podcast, two weeks ago, It looked on Google Maps and it looks just like it did before. Um, no sign of anything had, that anything had happened there. And I, in that conversation with the Cape residents that's one of the concerns they had was you're going to tear up this little bucolic place, and then try and put it back together again seemed like seemed to have worked on with vineyard wind at Covels beach but it, are you pretty confident it can work in all all three locations
1: yeah and bruce thank you for pointing that out we're, we're 100% confident and i think the fact that we've done this project in vine, for vineyard wind 1 in barnstable at that beach is about as good a track record as one could hope for to prove that what we're saying is true. Um, So just as is the case with um, Coval's Beach, when we do the work at Dow's Beach, we're going to be drilling under the beach. And we're not going to be tearing it up. We're not going to be digging trenches. All of the work will be staged in a very large parking lot. I'm not sure if you've been out to Dow's Beach, but it has a large paved area. All of the infrastructure will either be in that parking lot or on public roads. So we're gonna avoid getting into wetlands or destroying sand dunes. None of that stuff will happen. All of the work will be done off season over two construction seasons. And when it's done, that parking lot will actually look better than it does now um if you compare the Koval's beach parking lot before any of the work started with what it looks now it looks beautiful right now and the only thing that you can see are some manholes uh covers that's it um, there is no so this is not something that's going to tarnish the view of the beach the enjoyment of the beach it's a beautiful beach i've been there many times it will be beautiful when we're done with this project. And by the way, during the construction, uh, there'll be access to the beach at all times and to the fishing pier that uh, Suzanne Conley mentioned, there'll be access to that too. So there'll be some temporary disturbance for sure. There'll be a, It'll be a construction site, but when it's done, it's gonna be beautiful and the beach will not be harmed.
0: And another concern that they raised was just all this electricity coming in to an area where everybody's sort of playing volleyball or whatever they're doing on the beach. Um,
1: Is that a concern? So we have electric cables running under beaches and similar places all over the world. We have them for offshore wind projects. We also have them for electricity going to Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. This is very common um, it's not unusual at all. And I know that um, the Save Greater, greater Dowses Beach folks have said, well, those power lines gone in Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard are much lower voltage, so they don't apply. But the reality is that the design standards for high voltage power lines, like the ones that we're going to be uh, installing, the standards are much stricter than for low voltage lines. Um, for example, we are required to have a continuous uh, monitoring system to monitor for any faults or any problems with the system. And if that detects a problem, the electricity is shut down immediately. There's also uh, all sorts of redundant features um, to make sure these are designed, for example, to withstand saltwater intrusion, uh, erosion, and all those kinds of things. Um, so. The the design, the manufacture, the testing, all of that it has to be done at the very highest standards. And if you look at the track record of offshore wind, there are lots of projects now delivering power from offshore locations. Um, and you don't see the kinds of fires or explosions or those types of occurrences that we've heard about. In fact, when you look at the record of where those things happen, they typically happen in uh, low voltage areas, in cities, for example, where too many connections have been made to a vault or the vault is old and hasn't been maintained or there's electrical equipment in the vault that shouldn't be there. So uh, we're gonna use the most modern uh, types of design. Uh, We're gonna use the best cable manufacturers There will be witnesses to the testing to make sure that everything we install is safe. And it's going to be outfitted with a continuous monitoring system that will identify in advance any issues before they arise. So we don't think uh, there's a safety issue here at all.
0: Okay. now circling back a little bit to looking ahead in the future um, and how as more and more wind farms get built, how that power will get delivered. it, it does seem a little strange, the system that we have currently, where each developer sort of is, is responsible for building their own transmission line. Um, and, and it's sort of, they're responsible for any upgrades needed to make that work. Um, and it seems like the states, uh, that's the states of New England and I think maybe New York and New Jersey, are all exploring ways that maybe there can be some more comprehensive look at this so that it's not one-off, even though in this case, you were pointing out that there was a consistency about the, about the path of the cables to Barnstable. This, I mean, they're drawing lines all the way up to Boston, uh, going around the Cape and bringing in power that way, which would be significantly more than 70 miles. Yeah. Um, and I'm just sort of wondering, uh, are we, obviously everybody's waiting for these initial wind farms to get built and hopefully everything goes okay but are we at a sort of turning point in this whole transmission system that we may be i don't know put someone in charge of the best way to do it and then <laughs> either states or ratepayers or ratepayers end up paying one way or the other but how do you see that sort of working out
1: yeah bruce it's a good question you know this debate over having each generator responsible for their own transmission line versus a shared system. It's really been going on for about four or five years, maybe even more. And when the state first passed the offshore wind solicitations and sent out the uh, solicitations that we bid into for our projects, the standard was each generator should be responsible for their own transmission line. And if you look at the dozen or so roughly projects in the United States right now along the eastern seaboard, they all follow that route. And I think it's served us well so far in that it's built into the price. The generator is responsible for figuring out how to solve the problem of interconnection and do all of the various work that's required to permit the undersea cable. So it it served us well. In terms of the future, we are aware of these regional conversations about a shared transmission system, and it could potentially work, but I think it's important just to give it some context. This is just an idea right now. It's not a plan. And there's a lot of things you'll have to solve for. Um, One is if you have all these different developers using a shared system, how much redundancy do you have to build into the system to make sure that if something happens, the cable it doesn't shut down not just one project but you know an entire um, fleet of projects so i think redundancy is going to be really important figuring out where the shared system is actually going to connect to the grid um, needs a lot of work where will it be located how will the new england iso which sets the rules for this type of infrastructure look at a shared system of this nature so these questions can be resolved but you know, I've been in the development and permitting business for a very long time and I think it's fair to say that if you add it up all the time it will take to plan this tr- transmission, get buy-in, figure out who's funding it, deal with the technical issues, and then go through permitting uh, you're you're a decade away uh, I think from from actually having a shared system. In the meantime, our projects you know are being built now, We're trying to get them online to help the Commonwealth meet its climate targets for 2030. Climate change, as you know, isn't isn't waiting. Um, So what we would say is for those projects that have figured out the interconnection problem in an environmentally sensitive way, which we have, we should be able to go forward with those projects and not have them stalled out for what could be 10 or more years in pursuit of a shared transmission for projects which are in the planning stage now, it might make sense to explore whether they could be part of a shared transmission system.
0: So one question comes to mind on that. Um, For the benefit of our listeners, Commonwealth Wind, uh, Park Park City Wind, right? Park City Wind and South Coast Wind are all projects that were bid and approved and set to go ahead and then sort of the the world changed with the war in ukraine and what have you and so we're going through a little temporary glitch right now where um that's that problem is being sorted out and you're getting ready to hopefully bid again in this next procurement next year now there's a couple other companies that could bid as well Um, they haven't been too active up here previously but they could bid raises a question though Totally hypothetical. But if South Coast and Commonwealth Wind don't win these next bids, where do these other projects go? You've already sort of said there's not too many good places that they can come ashore. Is there a is there a sort of between the 10-year out, you know, maybe a shared system and what is on the table right now? Is there, is there some middle ground that could be tapped for interconnection?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't really speak to what the other projects will do for for interconnection. Um, You know, we we are excited about the prospects of rebidding. We expect to submit a bid um, and we think that our timeline and how far we've gone uh, down the process will make us a compelling bidder. We'll see what happens. The Commonwealth will be the one to make that. That choice, but um, we're optimistic that um, we're going to submit a, a very compelling bid and be able to take advantage of our connection in Barnstable. What others will do, I I think I can't really say.
0: But but I think the context of what you were talking about is that the Cape is open right now, and there's there's infrastructure there's the infrastructure there to bring power ashore. Brayton Point similarly. Um, but I didn't hear too many other easy options, I guess. So you're sort of saying that maybe they do have a trick up their sleeve if they want to pitch something. Well,
1: based on, based on our review of the options, there really were not a lot of easy options at all. There's an absence of, of options. And Bruce, this is part of the story of a new industry. Yeah. Um, We're also limited with port space. We're limited with the, big vessels that you need to pull these projects off so we're all just uh little by little creating the infrastructure that we need for a whole new industry but it's not like it's all there waiting for us we have to we have to make it happen
0: all right and so i guess we'll we'll find out and make it happen over the next uh six seven months we'll see how that goes ken i want to thank you for joining us today really appreciate it as always you Explain complicated things in a very <laughs> simple manner. People well, appreciate to understand.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for your continued coverage of this issue, not on the not only on the podcast but also in print. It's been great.
0: Thanks so much, and to our listeners, we'll see you again next week.